In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. So this is our third message in our series for Advent called Greater Expectations, because we tend to have expectations that get let down. We tend to be disappointed because the world and people just can't meet the expectations of the longings of our hearts. So what we need is we need to be careful that we don't treat the gospel the same way we treat other expectations. That we somehow lessen what we expect from the Lord. Now, I don't mean this in a sense of entitlement, like I expect God to give me a prosperous, wealthy life. I mean this in the sense that what he's promised he would do for us. Do we accept that? Do we accept that as his gospel? Or or have we somehow toned down what he's telling us will happen? And this is one of the nights where I think that this hits, um, the rubber hits the road the hardest. We look directly into some of the things salvation says is supposed to happen. The Bible says it's supposed to happen about salvation. And we have to wonder, is this really how we are living it, seeing it, receiving it, participating in it? So tonight, we are going to look at salvation. When we talk about humans being born with a, with a sin nature, being born uh, condemned for the sin of Adam... So that, that even when you are one day old, you are already condemned to hell because of what Adam did and Adam's guilt is passed on to you. When we look at that, we actually limit and distort the potential God made the human nature in order to commune and be one with him. And we make it a strange thing that God somehow cannot look at creatures like this without his killing his own son to somehow make him able to face sinful creatures. I want to read a scripture you know very well, but maybe you've never quite noticed the nuance of what it's saying. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to start in verse 17 because you know it super well. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation or a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, this is what we overlook often. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Who needed the reconciling? We did. He reconciled us who were wayward to himself. Paul does not say that Jesus came to reconcile the Father to us. He did not come so the Father can now turn and look at us. He came to reconcile us who were wayward to the Father who has been constantly pursuing and seeking his creatures. So all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. So he has come to change our minds about him. He's always been trying to hold the table of fellowship. We never acknowledged it. And Jesus came in flesh to make it 
abundantly clear because we were not looking up. We were not looking in the commandments. The nations were not looking at Israel because Israel kind of failed in their mission too. Um, he had to come in flesh and say, here I am sitting with you. Now do you get that I've always been pursuing you, that I want to bring your nature into mine, that I want us to share in this communion and fellowship so that you may continually grow and grow and grow and be partakers and sharers in this life and love. There's a word for this that the early church fathers uh, started calling right away within the first decades of the close of the New Testament. The, they all spoke Greek at that time. So they used a word called theosis, theosis, to describe what salvation is. And basically, we'll get into it in a second here, but what we see is that Christ saves us from sin and death for participation in God's own life. He saves us from sin and death so that we can participate in his life. Because when humanity turned its back on God, we cut ourselves off from the author of life, and that life was no longer flowing to us, so we were wilting like a broken branch. He came to save us from sin and death, which is what pulls us away from, which is what turns us from him. He pulled to save us from turning away to turn us back to himself. This is this, this turning back and now being in the, the facing one another and, and his, his light and his life and his love emanating and pouring forth eternally and forever and powerfully into us is what salvation is about. How does this happen? We we just looked at that with the chairs. It happens because of the incarnation. If we, we should have known the moment Jesus came in human flesh that he loved us and saved us. If he took on our flesh, he healed our flesh. He came and took our human nature upon himself so that as taking full nature, full human nature, and uniting it to his own full divine nature, there was immediate healing and there was an immediate bringing back together of the two into one, like in the Garden of Eden. So that then he can come and see the human beings. He can come and look at sinners and he can pick them up and he can love them and he can, yes, touch them. Because he healed us in his coming to us. Then he goes to the cross. Why? Because we were consigned to death. And the author of life goes there to destroy death because life overcomes death. The author of all, the creator of all, can make that nothingness gone. He can bring life even in the grave. So that everywhere we go, we can have this participation in his life. And then he is raised from the dead so that from all the way at the bottom where death is, he can blaze a trail straight up into fellowship in the heavenlies. So that there's nowhere we can go where we won't find that highway and join the road to salvation. This is the great work that our God has done for us. And it has some immediate and powerful ramifications in our lives. So we mentioned the word theosis. We'll define it in a second. But I want to show you first in scripture where it is. You'll never see the word. But the concept, it's what, it was what the fathers did is they took, and the mothers, they took the word theosis to describe a plethora of descriptions in scripture. How, how, what is the aim of salvation? Is it so that we go to heaven and avoid hell? Well, that might be a benefit, but the aim of salvation is the chairs so that we can be in union and communion again. 
And so in order to capture the many verses that talk about this, they use the word theosis. But here we see it in things like, you guys are just going to, if you want to flip around and catch up, good luck. But I'm going to read to you about eight verses. John 1, 12 to 13. John 1, 12 to 13. But all who did receive Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. They're born of God. That means there is a new nature in them. There's something that they share. God has a nature, and the humans are somehow sharing in this way. A father and child share a nature. God and his children share a nature. That's wild. Revelation 3, 11. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Then 321. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down on with my father on his throne. So there's an elevation in which God's children will be sitting with Christ on his throne. There's 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, literally transfigured, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. 2 Corinthians 3.18 is powerful because it does not say, Christ died for our sins, so we're forgiven, so now you're transformed. End of story. It says that you will continually be transfigured from one degree of glory to another. It doesn't say just three times. The more we behold the glory of the Lord, the more that glory brings us into his life. Can we ever be fully brought into all of the eternal, infinite Godhead? Of course not. We're creatures and we're limited and he's eternal and there's no end to him. So Paul says from one degree of glory to another. It's just this continual progression into the life of God. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17. 2 Corinthians 4 17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We talk a lot about God saved us to glorify him. That's proper and good. But we forget that he also saved us to glorify us. That he has an eternal weight of glory. This is all his glory that he wants to bestow upon his people. Flesh, mere mortals will be exalted to shine like Christ. And that's the glory of Christ is when we receive his glory. That makes him look really good. And we forget these great destinies and aims that God has for us sometimes. Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Of course, you have Romans eight thirty, which also says that we will be glorified. Um, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19. Paul prays that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It's unknowable, yet I want you to know it. Experience his love, but never fully know it because it's infinite. So uh, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Not only filled with the parts you deserve, 
or some of the parts, or the parts he's willing to let you partake. All the fullness of God. Paul also says in Colossians 2 that all the fullness of God dwelt in Christ. This is what we have to understand, is that when Christ became human, he became human to make the human what he is. So if all the fullness of the God had dwelt in Christ bodily, guess what's going to happen to your body? All the fullness of the Godhead's going to dwell in you too. That's wild. We need a greater expectation for the gospel. First John 3, verses 1 and 2. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God? And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We are God's children now. That's enough. But then he's like, there's a lot more to come with that. And we can't even comprehend till he's here. Second Thessalonians chapter one, verses 11 and 12. It's a, it's, it's kind of like a prayer Paul gives to the Thessalonians to this end. We always pray for you that our God make, may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So he's going to do all of this so that the name of Jesus, the Lord Jesus, may be glorified in you and in you and him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I should have put that with the other verses that talk about glory, but, you know, it's hard to order so many great passages. That was the one that's also talking about how we will receive his glory within us. Colossians 3 verse 4. Colossians 3 verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. Same way he comes, we, we will be too. And then finally, and perhaps the most uh, clear and important passage is 2 Peter 3, I'm sorry, 2 Peter 1, verses 3 through 4. And if you've been here for at least half a year, you've probably heard me say this one at least a dozen times. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So he's given us everything we need for his life and for his godliness. And he has give, uh, uh, he's called us to his own glory and excellence. Not like, I'll give you some glory. He's called us to his own glory. I don't know if you get that. It's not just like God is glory, but we are glorified, like some sort of lesser extent. Like, no, we are called to his glory. That's phenomenal that the human creature can be called to that. Um, By which he has granted to us his very precious and great promises so that through them. So all of this he's named. It's like through all this, the aim is this, that through them you may become partakers of. Of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. We were united to sin and it was corrupting and killing us. He has rescued us so that we can now be united to his nature and grow 
and grow and be transfigured and transfigured and glorified and glorified. And don't think that this is all waiting for heaven. He is pouring himself into us now and pulling us into his life ever so more. So I think these verses make very clear that the Bible never minimizes the gospel to Jesus died on the cross for your sins so you don't go to hell. It, 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 I, it's very hard to find a verse that even just so shortly says it like that. It's so much bigger. Like our expectations are not cool, no hell, yay, heaven. Our expectations must be greater. What does it mean to be saved from death and then to, to be partakers of, of being the sons of God, of, of being children of God, of, of being partakers of the divine nature and, and being called to his own glory and his own excellence. And what does all this mean that the, the weight of glory will, 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 will be far more you can't compare the minimal suffering we have now compared to this great way to glory. Like, what does all this mean? It's so much more than I'm saved from hell. If we keep the story there, that my, that, that, that what Christ did is simply cleansed my, my offenses toward God and my guilt so that now I can go to heaven. Like we have minimized and cut off the entire tree of the gospel and left ourselves with a single leaf and said, it's my ticket in. And God's like, what, what, what yeah. I wanted you to abide in this whole thing and to grow in this whole thing and to, and to, and be infused with everything that I'm giving to you. But when we don't believe, when we don't look at all that and we just say, I don't go to hell, we never find a point or a reason to abide and to grow into all this richness. And we're left with questions of motivation to obey God like, you hear things like this all the time. Fortunately, in Protestant circles, not so much this one, but things like, if you keep acting like that, you're going to go to hell. I better get my act together. I don't want to go to hell. Or, as my professor actually said last week, and he's not wrong. I'm just saying that this is a small view. He said, um, boy, the rapture, that'll make you righteous because you wouldn't want to be caught doing that when Jesus returns. That's why it's so important we believe in this is so that we don't do these things. And and I just had a moment of like, whoa, what? Do you mean the whole reason we shouldn't sin is in case Christ comes back and we get caught doing that? Like, is this the motivation that we, we, we use a lot of shame tactics to, you shouldn't do that. And here's like the last, like when I hear all the time, it's like, you don't know what Christ did for you. When we say like, how can you still do that? This is all shame motivation. It's all feeling oriented or, or we have to go watch the passion of Christ to see him suffer for the hundredth time. Go watch it. So we can just be re-energized like, oh, he did that for me. How dare I do this? I'm going to do this for him now. Like, these are such surface, fleshy forms of motivation. And the scriptures are full of these expectations that are greater than what we've limited ourselves to, saying, this is why we should follow his commandments. This is why we should avoid sin, is because he is calling us into more than life, but abundant, eternal, glorified life, which shares and interweaves and is with his nature, partaking in it. I mean, you're, you lose words. You lose words. So we're saved from sin and death to participate in communion with God, something which historically is called theosis. I like the word, and I want you guys to know that word because if it, it just really spells it all out. Think of it. What does it mean? Theosis is the lifelong process of becoming like God. The lifelong, please note this lifelong, and it's also 
eternally long <laughs> process of becoming like Jesus. Theo, Greek for God. Osis, Greek for process. It's the process of becoming like God. That's what we're dealing with. Um, so in this process, this lifelong process, it's God's life is being interwoven with our life. So as we sit in communion with him, his life is pulling us into his own and it's interweaving just like the two natures in the one person of Christ. It's interweaving and happening within us. This is salvation so that we are saturated with his nature. Um, Frederica Matthews Green, um, I think she's borrowing from C.S. Lewis because he says something very similar. Um, She says, As a red dye saturates a white cloth by the process of osmosis, so humans can be saturated with God's presence by the process of theosis. So the threads and the fibers, every part of this cloth is gradually taking on the nature of the red. It's still a cloth, but it now has the red in every fiber and thread. This is what theosis is for the Christian. You're still a human being, but you are taking on his nature in every fiber and thread of your existence. We share in his nature. Now that sounds so scandalous, right? Because it's like God is transcendent. He's above us. He's unknowable. He's unseeable. How can this be? So what we say is we get united with his energies, but not his essence. That means that God has chosen to commune himself, communicate himself, excuse me, um, through ways that we can interact with. Uh, So his love, his grace, these are energies that he sends forth to us and they are, um, they're from his nature but they are in ways in which we can grab onto and see and know and experience. We can, we can experience grace. We can experience love. So these are his ways of making us connect with his energies. And these energies are connected to his nature. So we never know the transcendence of God. But we do know the imminence, the nearness, the presence of him. Because he makes himself knowable in that way. Or one more illustration, because that one's sort of philosophical and I get that. Um, much more concrete. Uh, John of Damascus likened it to iron and fire, where iron is the human nature and the fire is God's nature. And listen to how he describes their interplay. He says, Christians are they who are made like to God as far as possible of their own free will, so we enter into this by, by wanting, by choosing to commune with God. We're brought into his likeness as far as possible. And then he continues, um, and by God's indwelling and by his abiding grace. They are truly, so this is where his language is so much more radical and makes us uncomfortable, but hear him out, hear him out. They are truly called, lowercase g, gods, not by nature, but by participation. Just as red hot iron is called fire, not by nature, but by participation in the fire's action. So God says we must be holy as he is holy. What is he saying there? So 
the smith puts the iron in the fire and he pulls it out of the forge, right? And the, the iron is glowing red right there. That iron never stopped being iron, but it has taken on all the properties of the fire. It has taken the fire's nature on and it is now infused with it, yet it's still iron. This is what he means by participation. We participate with God. We're in his presence. We're in his fire, if you will. And we begin to aglow not just like the moon reflecting the sun, but we're actually being changed and transformed from one degree of glory to another. Unless we forget, that was Paul saying in light of the story of Moses, whose face literally shone because he was in the presence of God. Moses went through something similar. So in short, this is what we say. Through theosis, we become by grace, by God's work, we become by grace what he is by nature. So we become what he is by nature, not because we are awesome, wonderful people who do the right things all the time, or we work really hard at it. We become what he is by nature through grace. He gives us this energy and power, and we get to grow into it. So we become by grace what he is by nature. So you want to obey God? Does that sound like good motivation? Because <laughs> every time you sin, you pull yourself out of theosis. And you are actually now in a new process of becoming. Remember, the dynamic nature will always be continually becoming something. And so it's not just that we lose this wonderful progress of theosis when we sin, but it's that now we are in a new process of becoming and it is being unified to death. We are choosing to go and be disfigured into something entirely else. That's terrifying. And that makes me say with the psalmist who in Psalm 119 said for 176 verses how wonderful God's word is. Now I get it. Now I get it. His word is wonderful because it saves me from becoming a demon. His word is wonderful because it keeps pulling me into this likeness and this life. <sighs> okay, so uh, I've got one more verse, and then we're going to conclude with some, uh, some, what does this mean for us as we leave tonight? Uh, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2 verse 12. This is one that trips people up. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Paul's saying, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Okay. We do backflips around this part. Work out your own salvation, like. But we're not worked by saved. We're not. We're not saved by work. We're not worked by saves. <laughs> we're not saved by work. And we we have to really quickly say, uh, Paul clearly can't mean that there. Um, but it's God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Well, it's very simple if you take the theosis concept. It's very simple. Paul, first of all, doesn't say work for your salvation. He says work it out. 
If God has brought this wonderful life and communion into us, he's saying, do things that make it stronger, that make it begin to grow. That's what it means to work it out. Because God is uh, the one who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So here it is. What Paul's saying is God's doing all this stuff in us. Now it's our turn to work it out. It's our turn to respond, in other words. You can call this cooperation. Uh, there's a, some people like the word synergy because it means God gives us his energy, his grace, and we must use our energy to do something with it. His grace doesn't come and just pass through us like a passive sleeve. Oh, God's grace is coming through me. Now I'm being transformed because I'm just sitting here and letting it come through me. No, his grace comes to us and we have the choice to commune or to reject. His grace comes. What are you going to do? Thank you for this grace. I will now use it to turn toward you. Or we say, ah, eh. Every time his grace, his energy, his power is at work, we have a choice. Will we cooperate with what he gives us? Or will we say, eh, he does not just do this passively over us. We must use our self-will to say, yes, I want to commune. His chair is facing our chair. Are you sitting in it? Yeah, I'm saved. Yeah, but are you sitting in it like this? Yeah, that's nice, God. Uh huh. Yeah, I heard that. Yeah. Is this communion? But this is the posture we can take with Him. We're distracted through life. When Theosis is asking us to, yes, you're in the chair, you're saved, cool, but now there is a conversation happening, and His grace and His energies are emanating endlessly toward us because they're free gifts that He gives without discretion. He gives them to us, and we sit there and we either eh, deflect and just like, saying no to it or we're like whoa i want to cooperate i want to participate in what is happening here that's what theosis is giving to us is the choice and that's what paul's saying work out your salvation he's doing and working in us but we must work this out we must say yes to his grace and and say okay you give me power well then be powerful if if he comes with grace and says pray to me it means nothing if i choose not to pray to him If he comes in his grace and speaks to us through his word and we say, maybe next time, I'll consider that, Lord. We have have spurned his grace. We must on our end say, yes, let me work with this. That's what's being presented here is not, or what's being presented here is a, it is a partnership. God wants us participating with him over his rule over all things. And we practice that every moment of every day so that in the new heaven and new earth, we're either going to be good rulers and participants or we're going to be those that, I don't. I mean, I don't honestly know how all this works, but maybe you're there by the skin of your teeth, as they say, or you're like there, but you're like not given much responsibility. This is all total conjecture, right? Based on some good guesses from scripture, but still not very clear. My point is like, what are we doing with the grace of God now? Theosis says, God is doing it. He's giving it. But you get to choose to participate in the communion or to opt out. So what is what is participating and cooperating look like with his grace? How does that look? I'll tell you some very simple things, and then the Holy Spirit will lead you through some of the more specific things. Um, first, you should be reading your Bible. Grace is given to you every single day. 
Are you eating it up? Are you letting it wash into your soul? Or is the grace sitting there and you're like, I'm a little busy this morning. These are choices we make. Reading the Bible. How about prayer? Prayer is always the opportunity to come and open our hearts and allow the chair situation. Just allow the glory, the presence, the nature, and the grace of God to wash over us. That's what prayer literally is. It's just opening ourselves up to the presence and letting it do its present work. <laughs> and prayer is how we jump into that life. Now, yes, sometimes prayer needs to be spoken. We do say a lot of things in prayer. We thank him for things. We confess our sins. We uh, maybe pray some psalms. We um, intercede for other people. We have our own needs. Like there's, there's a lot of things we could pray for. But remember, prayer is not primarily to pray for things like God's a genie. Ah, he gives me three wishes every morning, the best genie in the world. So then I give my wishes to him. It's not like that, nor is prayer like a vending machine. You put the coins in and then something's going to come out of it. Like prayer is actually given to us to commune with him, to participate in this process of theosis. That's why prayer is there. Everything else is secondary. If I need to tell him I need stuff from him in order to commune with him, that's the point of it. If I need to thank him or confess sins, it's simply a vehicle to commune with him. It's being with God that prayer is about. So we read the scriptures, we pray, we worship and commune. Uh, we worship and have communion. Like, yes, you're here. You have said yes to the grace of God. Well, of course, some of us might be here and in our minds we're actually like this, right? Like that might be the case, but at least you're here. That's worth something. And then you're like, if you're open to God and still communing with him, like, wonderful. Um, but I, I just do like Jesus time on my podcast and I listen to music. That's my worship. That's, that's cool, like, in between, but here's the problem, brothers and sisters. Like, like communion is what concludes, it's like what completes this worship. We sing to him, we thank him, we talk to him, and, and we have this fellowship, but all of this is sealed in our recognition that Christ has given himself to us, and we receive him. We receive communion as the constant practice of his grace is here. We're saying yes. We're receiving and every moment of the day is the same thing. Do we receive his body and blood? Do we receive his presence? Do we receive him or do we continue to just distract ourselves? We also have fasting. Fasting's a way to disengage ourselves from the things we've been entangled in and then to recommune with God. Uh, and obedience. Don't minimize obedience. Every chance to do the right thing is a response to the grace of God in your life. Don't stretch that story too far, Brandon. Don't exaggerate to make yourself look good. Like, is that really a big sin if I said the fish was just like a fingernail bigger than it really was? But what is it doing? It's me communing with my desire for people to think well of me. And that small choice has gone the, the opposite way of theosis. So I, every little act of obedience matters. Not that it will destroy you, but that every moment is a chance to continually train and strengthen the will so that it will continually say yes to God, especially in the big things too, that we're continually training the yearnings and the loves and the heart to sit and turn to him in that communion, in that theosis. That's why obedience matters. Okay, I've said enough. So those are some ideas of how you cooperate, how you enter into theosis. Um, salvation is like two chairs turned 
facing one another in communion and we get to sit at it. That's salvation. God created us this way. God saved us even when we sinned to bring it back to being this way. And that's how we should live because the more we do this now, the further we will be in eternity. And that's, there is so much Christ to live into. Will you sit in the communion with him and listen and participate in his life? Or will we continue to say, thanks for taking me out of hell, I'm good, and we keep living our own distracted lives? What will we do? Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us, for you are good and you love mankind.